uh, we have a new week, new parasha. We're learning. Welcome the, back. Thank you. Thank you. We're learning for the question of Mahayasara. She needs the Rifuah, of course. That's why we continue to do this uh, special shiur. <clears throat> We're learning a new parasha. It's called Parashat Shemini. It's the third parasha of Baikram. And uh, the beginning of the parasha actually is a highlight because for many parashiyot, now we've been learning about the Mishkan, as you know. And we didn't learn yet about the inauguration of the Mishkan, which actually we just learned about the building and the construction and all the different dimensions. But uh, tonight, the parasha is going to tell us about the, the opening day. Now, to understand the opening day, we have to learn that there was a, uh, a week of preparation before the Mishkan was actually officially operational. And that was called the Shiv'ai Meha Milu'im, which is the seven days of preparation. And uh, that was done in the last week of the month of Adar, which is almost like now. Yeah. And after the seven days were over, on the eighth day, that's called Yom HaShemini, which is the name of this week's parasha, parasha Shemini, which is the eighth day. That's Aharon was nominated officially to be the Kohen Gadol, and his sons were Kohanim as well. And that's when the Shekhinah came down, and the Beit HaMikdash again became officially operational on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, on the first day of the month of Nisan. And that's why the parasha begins, and it was on the eighth day. And as she says, the eighth of what? So the eighth day of the Miluim. That's the eighth day of the preparation days of the inauguration. As she tells us, it was on that day that the Mishkan was finally erected. That day, the Midrash tells us, it was a special day for 10 different reasons. So I'm going to give you the 10 reasons that make Rosh Chodesh Nisan uh, special. So number one, it says it's the first day of creation because the first day of Nisan was on a Sunday. And we know that when God created the world, the first day was Sunday. So therefore God chose the inauguration of the Mishkan on the same day that he chose to begin the creation of the world. Number two, it was the first day that the princes of the tribes brought korbanot. We're going to learn that for the first 12 days after the inauguration, every day another leader of a tribe brought an inaugural sacrifice. So the first day of the inaugural sacrifices of the tribes happened on this day as well. So that's the second thing. The third thing, it's the first day that Aharon and his sons assumed the position of Kohanim. Number four, it was the first day that the Mizbeach officially went into service. Number five, it was the first day that the fire descended from heaven. As we know, in the Mishkan, there was a miracle that every day a fire from heaven would come down and consume the Korbanot. First of all, number six, the first day of the restriction that offerings be eaten 
on the grounds of the Mishkan only, which means on the inauguration day, so now there was limitations where you're allowed to eat the korbanot. So you were only allowed to eat the korbanot in the area of the Mishkan. Number seven, it was the first day that it became prohibited to bring korbanot on altars outside of the grounds of the Mishkan. Before the Mishkan was built, you were allowed to have private altars in your backyard. Once the Mishkan was built, those private altars became forbidden, and therefore you were only allowed to bring korbanot in the Mishkan itself. Number eight, it was the first day of the first month of the year, because Nisan is the first month. So like we would say, 1-1 one, one. was the first month of the year, first day. <clears throat> Number nine, it was the first day that the Shekhinah rested amongst the Jewish people. That's when the Shekhinah finally came down into the Mishkan. Number 10, it's the first day that the Kohanim gave the priestly blessing of Birkat Kohanim. So, <clears throat> the day is crowned with 10 special blessings. So on that day, Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu called Aharon and his sons, Yisrael, and he called the elders. Now, what did he call the elders for? As she says, to let them hear, People were questioning, how was Aharon going into the, into the Mishkan? Who authorized it? So therefore Moshe called the elders so they can hear the authorization that came from God, that God actually told Aharon to go serve as the Kohen Gadol. And nobody should think that Aharon entered on his own. Or they should think that maybe, you know, that Moshe Rabbeinu was just, uh, you know, acting in nepotism by giving his brother an appointment because he wants to take care of his brother. So he called the elders, so the elders should hear clearly from God that it was God that actually uh, sanctioned. And uh, whatever they were doing, it was in accordance with God's will. And now the Pasuk says, So Moshe tells Aharon, The first Qurban that he has to take is a calf, an egil. Now, why do you think the first Qurban Aaron has to take is an Egil? What does Egil remind you of? Golden calf. Very good. The golden calf is correct. And that's what Ashi says, that God says, bring a calf in order that it'll be an indication that I have forgiven you and given you kapara for your involvement in the golden calf. And therefore, <laughs> that since Aaron part of the golden calf, the first Qurban he has to bring is what? Again? Like a uh, redemption. Exactly, as a redemption. And then it says, <clears throat> that was the hatat, that was an offering. The ayin And it also brought a Qurban, uh, a ram as a Qurban ola. <clears throat> and he brought this Qurban in front of God. That was Aharon's Qurban. Ve'el b'nei Yisrael t'dabel demon. And then speak to the Jewish people. They're going to take a, a, a goat, a male goat, as a, a sin offering, as well as an egel and a keves and an egel and a sheep for Qurban Ola. They'll bring an ox and a goat, sorry, an ox and a ram 
for Korban Shilamim, Lizboach Lefne Hashem, Umenha, and they also brought a meal offering mixed with oil, Ki Hayom Nira Hashem Nira Alechem, because today <coughs> God appears to you. And as she says, what does it mean God appears to you? God is going to rest his presence of Shekhinah in the work of your hands. And therefore, all these Kurbanot are mandatory because these are Kurbanot in honor of the Shekhinah that was going to rest on the Shekhinah <coughs> on this day. Now, these were one-time Kurbanot. They were not brought every day, these Kurbanot. These were just brought on day one, again, as an atonement, and in order to uh, present God with these kurbanot as he uh, came down. That's what the pastor says, ki hayom. That this was done, hayom. Hey, son, how you doing? Okay. Now the pasuk says, vayikhu et asher simam Moshe, they took all the kurbanot, el pene o el mo'ed, vayikribu kol ha'edah, vayikribu kol ha'edah, and all the people came close, uh, and they stood in front of Hashem. Then the next pasuk says, This is what God has commanded you to do today. And if you do it, the glory of God will be upon you. So now Aaron has to start the service. So Moshe tells Aaron, He tells him, Go close to the Mizbeah. Now, why does he have to tell him to go close to Mizbeah? Aaron was the Kohen. He knows exactly where the Mizbeah is. He doesn't need any uh, uh, prodding by Moshe. So why did Moshe have to tell Aaron, go, go, go close to the Mizbeah? By the way, Aaron was older than Moshe by three years. So why is his younger brother telling him, go, go, go? Aaron knows that his job is to be the Kohen. What does he need Moshe to tell him to go close to the Mizbeah? So that she says something amazing. Shehaya Aharon Bosh. Aharon was embarrassed. What was he embarrassed? He was afraid to approach. So why was he afraid to approach? Because he felt that his korbanot are not going to be accepted. Aharon felt guilty that he had a hand in the golden calf. And therefore he felt that he wasn't worthy to be the Kohen. And he didn't think that, you know, the people are going to be well by Aharon. So therefore he said, I'm not worthy. Therefore he stood on the sidelines. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu tell his brother? Moshe, Why are you embarrassed? This is what you were selected for. The rabbis explained that Moses, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu told them that bring your uh, sin offering, meaning bring the Egel, and that'll be atoned for, for the sin. And then we have nothing uh, to, be, to, to be worried about. <clears throat> Which means uh, there's no reason to hesitate. Once you bring your karbanot as kapala, you will be uh, atoned and you have nothing to worry about. It just shows you how humble Aharon was. Wow. And Asuk says, uh, bring your sin offering, which we said was the egel, we said that was the ram, and then bring the karban of the am, the command of the people, which we said is the the, the he goat and the egel and the kevs. Now the pasuk says, and you will atone for the people 
like God says, So Aaron does indeed go next to the Mizbeah. He slaughtered the eagle hatat. Then they brought the blood to him. He dipped his fingers in the blood. He put it on the corners of the Mizbeah, which is the Halakha. The rest of the blood, he put in the base of the Mizbeah. The base of the Mizbeah, like a... Um, like a channel, like a like a like a pipe, and he poured the rest of the blood at the base uh, of the uh, of the foundation of the mizbeah. And now it says, uh, the fat and the kidneys of the of the korban. That's the the diaphragm uh, and the, the liver, which is the kabed. These are all pieces of meat from the animal. So they put it on the Mizbeah and they burnt it on the Mizbeah. Exactly, like they were commanded to. And now we get to Pasuk 11. Now regarding the uh, the flesh, that's the meat and the hide. And as she says, now, this was a, uh, a type of korban, which was called the korban hatat. And it, it's a sin, uh, a sin offering. And it's called the hatat hitsona. That's a hatat that its blood was sprinkled on the outer mezbeah. And this korban hatat actually was entirely burned. Normally, you don't burn the rest of the meat and you don't burn the uh, the hide. But this hatat was an exceptional one that they burnt all of it. Like it says, ashes? Yeah, they burnt, they burnt everything. Normally, the meat of the hatat goes to the Kohen to eat. But this Qurban hatat was different. The meat actually went up on the uh, Mizbayah. So this was, again, based on the commandment of God. So that you have to know this is an exceptional Qurban Hatat that it was brought actually all on the uh entirely burnt. Another right, no, no, no part of it was uh, was eaten. Now the last point says over here, right, they burnt the uh the meat and the flesh. They burnt it. So they didn't burn it on the Mizbeah. They burnt the meat and the flesh outside of the camp in a, a special place. So the only thing that they put on the Mizbeah was those pieces of meat that I mentioned to you before. The fat, the diaphragm, the liver, no specific parts. And then the rest of it, they burnt outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the Korban Ola. So they brought, uh, you know, they they brought and prepared the blood of that Qurban to Aharon. And what did he do with it? It says, uh, And he sprinkled it around the Mizbeah. Then they brought the pieces of the Ola, all the pieces, which is the head, and he put all the pieces of the Qurban Ola on the Mizbeah. And he washed the insides, the inside of the animals 
need to be, uh, you know, need to be cleaned. So he washed them, the innards and the feet, and then he put them on the mizbeach as well. Because the korban ola, as we know, ola is on the mizbeach. That's all, all up to God. But Yakrev et korban na'am, then he brought the korban of the people. But Yakach et se'ira hatat asher la'am, and then he took the um, the goat that belonged to the people. And the Pasuk says, means he brought it like the first uh, sin offering. It's a nice word. He brought it, it's a verb, which means exactly what we said above. They brought, right. We brought it like the first Qurban Hatat. Whatever we said, they brought the meat on the mezbah and the rest of the animal they burnt outside the machane. And then it says, He then brought the korban ola of the people. And he followed the regular laws of how you bring a korban ola. And now it says, He then brought the meal offering. And he filled his hands with the flour, like we learned. Remember we learned, how does he fill his hands? With kimitza. He takes his hands like this, he scoops with the fingers, and they scoop it up, and he puts that on the mezbeach, and that's what he did. Besides the regular korban that you have to bring every day, all these korban that we just mentioned were special once-in-a-lifetime korbanot that were brought on the inauguration day. But keep in mind, there's also Daily korbanot that are brought every single day. Remember, we learned every morning they brought a korbanola in the morning and a korbanola in the afternoon. Exactly. So they had korbanola also. Besides the, you know, once in a lifetime, they brought the the daily. This is on the eighth day? This is on the eighth day. Exactly. This is the main main day over here. Which means... All these were brought after the morning sacrifice. And the law is you're not allowed to bring any sacrifice until you bring the daily korban or like the opening korban every single day. And then after they brought the korban, it's called olat tamid, the korban tamid. After they brought it, then they brought all these subsequent, you know, once in a lifetime korban on the eighth day. And then it says in Pasuk 18, they brought the Qurban of the people, the ox and the ram, which is Qurban Shalamim, Shalam, they brought the blood to Aaron, and he sprinkled it on the Mizbeah, the fats of the ox, the tail, which is the kidneys, the diaphragm with the liver. And they placed the um, the fats upon the uh, the chest of the animal. They put the fats on the mizbeach. Now, what does it mean? So that she says over here, an interesting process. So they have to wave these pieces of meat first. There's a special process called tenufa. So they. Quinn takes it and waves it up and down and forward and backwards. And then they give it to another Kohen and he puts it on the on the Mizbeah. 
So what happens is, let's say you had the the chest, so the the, the, the person's holding it. So now that's one piece, so it's on the, it's on top. But now he puts the uh, the fat on top of it. So therefore, now what was on the what was on the top now is on the bottom. Let me just read it again in the she. They place the fat on the on the chazir. The chazir is the chest of the animal. After the waving, the kohen who waved it gave the fats and the chest to another kohen. It is thus found that the upper ones, those which were previously on top, are now below. I guess because uh, they turned it over. He gave it over to him and he flipped over. So it was on the bottom now, was on the top and vice versa. And then it says, They took the hazot, uh, which was the chest of the animal. They took the right thigh. So they waved it, as we said. And then if they were all that, is the first time a Kohen ever delivered Birkat Kohanim to the nation. Just like mm-hmm. we go to Kohanim, the Kohanim bless us, it's the first time it's going to happen. Aaron raised his hands towards the people, and he blessed them. And what did he bless them? The blessing of Kohanim, which is, he came down from the Mizbeh from being the Korban, the uh, area of the <coughs> of the Mishkan. So it says, Moshe reading which is now Moshe Rabbein who was going to teach Aaron how to bring the incense. Again, it's the first day that they're really bringing the Ketoret. So she says, that's why he went in, to learn for the first time, the Ma'aseh But now you have something else, something very, very special. Now she says, after all the Korbanot were brought down, why did Moshe not take Aharon back inside? So one says he took him inside to teach him how to make the Ketoret. But another explanation is, is that after they did all this, they were all the Korbanot, and they did all these different actions. But what happened? The Shekinah did not come down. Now... Aaron was distracted. So Aaron said, I did all this. We built it. We brought all the Korbanot. We followed all the instructions. The Shekhinah did not come down. So what did Aaron say? I am certain that God is angry with me. He took the blame. That the reason why the Shekhinah didn't come down, he took the blame for himself. said, um, so Aaron tells his brother, Moshe Achi, that's what you did to me. 
minute by Yashti, you brought me here to embarrass me. You told me to bring the Qurban, you told me to do everything, and now nothing happened. You brought me to embarrass me. So Moshe Rabbeinu jumped up, and Moshe Rabbeinu went in with Aharon, and they asked God for mercy, and then finally the Shekhinah came and raised down, came down. So you see, even after all that, it still needed an extra tefillah. You know, every, everything works, you still need tefillah. But even though they did everything correct, they needed one more prayer in order to bring down the Shekhinah. And now it says when they came out, bless the people again. And what was the blessing they gave? The famous blessing that we say before we do mitzvot, may the pleasantness of God be upon us. That the Shekhinah should always be uh, in your handiwork. Whatever you're doing, the Shekhinah should be you know, a blessing in, in, in your handiwork. First seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu was working in the Mishkan and he put it up. Moshe Rabbeinu put it up. He served in it and he took it up. The first seven days, the Shekhinah did not rest in the Mishkan where Moshe Rabbeinu was doing it. All this that we troubled, will rest upon us. We want the Shekinah to rest upon us so we know that God forgave us for the Egyptian. And now we don't see anything. On the eighth day, said, you want the Shekinah to come down? Do this. Bring all these sacrifices that I told you. And the glory of God will be upon you. You think I'm Hashub? Sandra's crickets. Somebody's crickets. You have crickets on your phone? <laughs> Unbelievable. So now it says over here that Moshe Rabbeinu says, Aaron's a better man than me. I was doing this for seven days and the Shekinah did not come down because the Shekinah is waiting for my brother Aaron. His korbanot are going to bring the service and his avodah. But sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And uh, on that day, we're going to learn, Shekinah actually came down after Aharon brought the korbanot with a little prayer from his brother. And finally, the B'nai Yisrael saw that all this was accepted. Okay, welcome. I welcome. We have these classes over here for the refuash of the Mav Haya Sarah, but Simha. Amen. Amen. Can you So now we have a we have an amazing piece tonight when the Parashat Simini. So yes, last night was incredible. Last night was the happy part of the Parashat. That's the part of the Parashat where we learned the inauguration of the Mishkan. And we had uh, beautiful korbanot brought by Aharon, brought by the people. Finally, Moshe escorts Aharon into the Mishkan. And what they were waiting for happened. The Shekhinah came down. And uh, that's it. We're in business. So that was the... Um, and then Aharon got up and he blessed the people with the first Pitkat Kohanim. And then he said that may the uh, presence of God be in all your uh, efforts and all your work. And the people were elated, and they praised God, and they fell on their faces, 
in uh, in awe of the of, of the event. Now I'm sorry to tell you that we get to the uh, part of the parasha that is actually tragic. It's chapter ten, and it's basuk aleph. And we knew something tragic was going to happen. I'll tell you how we knew, because the parasha begins with the word vayhi. Vayhi, and the Gemara tells us that that's a buzzword. Whenever you see the word vayhi, that implies that something tragic is going to happen. You see, for example, vayhi bimei hashverosh. Haman, there was a famine, there was a war. So usually the word vayhi uh, can connote bad news, and you see it happen this week's parasha shortly, or I would say even at the peak of the celebration. I mean, this is the people you have to remember, this has got to be the greatest day since Matan Torah, since the giving of the Torah. Because after we got the Torah, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up for 40 days and 40 nights to bring down, you know, everything else, then every, everything spiraled out of control. And by the 17th day of Tammuz, we did the Egel, and then after that, we needed atonement, and so the month of Tammuz, Av, Elul, Tishrei, Cheshvan, Kislev, Tebet, Shvat, Adar, Nisan. So almost 10 months, B'nai Israel were in uh, spiritual limbo. And finally, on this day, they compare it like a wedding day. God came back to the bride. This is a bride that committed adultery. We went to do Abu Dazara. So the marriage was all, uh, you know, was all, was all ruined. And then there was reconciliation, and Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the arbitrator, made peace with us and God. And at the peak of the wedding, where everything is working beautifully, the Mishkan is functioning, Shekhinah is with us, people are reveling and celebrating. It's so uh, tragic that I don't even want to read the Pesukim, but we have no choice. The children of Aharon, Nadab and Abihu, they were the Kohanim, Nadab and Abihu. So they took the shovels. Uh, these are the shovels over there that were going to be used for the incense, for the ketoret. And they placed in the shovels fire. And they put on it the incense. And they brought this incense in front of God, but the Torah calls it Esh Zara. Esh Zara literally means an alien fire. Asher lo siba otam, that they were not commanded. Well, they did something that was unsanctioned. It's called an alien fire. So I'm reading over here just before we get to Nashi. The Bishmael holds that they used fire from the altar. Uh, but it was alien because they had not been bidden to offer it, which means um, they weren't supposed to take the fire from the Mizbeach in order to do the Ketoret. The fire was supposed to come down from heaven. But they did not follow the instructions to rely on that miracle that the fire was going to come down from heaven. They took some fire off the Mizbeach. That's according to the B. Ishmael, the Biakiva holds that the fire was literally alien because it did not come from the altar. The Bidezer agrees that the fire was not holy, but as that the offense was the ruling that it was permissible to offer the fire, thus they were guilty of rendering the decision. So we're going to read different opinions in Nashi. Nashi says that one of the sins was is that they rendered a halakha in front of Moshe. 
They had a question exactly what to do in the Mishkan regarding this fire, where the fire should be taken from. They should have asked Moshe because he was there. They didn't ask Moshe. They took the law into their own hands. And that's considered a crime to uh, make a ruling uh, without asking your rabbi when he's standing right in front of you. Some say the sin of Bnei Aaron was they drank. They drank a little more wine than they should have, and they served while they were intoxicated. Different sins. We didn't come here tonight to list the sins, but we have to know that they did something that was considered offensive. And the pasuk comes along and says, "Vatetzeish, a fire came down from heaven, melefne Hashem, vatochal otam, it consumed Nadav Avihu, vayamutu lefne Hashem." Unbelievable. The two boys, the two tzaddikim. Nadav Abiyu, at the peak of the party, at the peak of the ecstasy, they die in front of Hashem. Now, the wedding day turns into a double tragedy, double death in the holy, which means in the most sanctified area. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu says, this was predicted. I knew something like this was going to happen. This is what God said. There's going to be two close ones that are going to be very close to me, and I'm going to be exalted in their death. Which means when the tzaddikim die, so it creates a great fear amongst the people. Why? Because the people come along and say, if the tzaddikim who are obedient, who are righteous, were unable to uh, bypass the death penalty, so or the most of the regular guy who's not a tzaddik becomes very, very fearful of God. This is not a coincidence that we read this perasha at the time where we lost one of the great rabbis of the generation, Chaim Kanievsky. This is one of the pillars of the world, where in, in an unstable world, he was holding up the world. The world was unstable when he was alive. But everybody always said, okay, even though we have an unstable world, but you have Efraim Kanievsky, the tzaddik, so he's, uh, he's holding it up. Now we still have an unstable world, but we don't have the rabbi. That's very, very uh, concerning. It should be for all of us. And that's what it says over here, that whenever God takes the great tzaddik, God took Efraim Kanievsky, who learned every single day for 19 hours a day, and he finished the whole Torah every year, and he was... God can take him. So what does the regular guy say? So therefore, when the close ones to God are taken away. That she says, when God makes judgment with the tzaddikim, he becomes feared. He becomes feared. He becomes exalted. The people praise him. The people say, if the good people are taken away from God, then what's going to be with the wicked people? God is feared says, don't read him and the holy ones. In any event, this was a, so Moshe Rabbeinu knew that there was going to be a great sanctification of God's name. There was going to be human sacrifices on that day. Moshe actually thought it was going to be him and his brother. It's an amazing thing. That means Moshe and Aaron were preparing that they're going to have to give their lives up on the day of the Mishkan in order to bring fear into the people. That seems as an ingredient at the time. When they saw that it wasn't them, that it was Nadab Abihu, Moshe will say, 
wow, now I see that Adam Avinu is even, even greater in a certain sense than me and the Haron. Now imagine the scene. Aaron was just nominated to be the Kohen Gadol. His first day on the job. Entered, he brought the Kodbanot, he brought the Shekhinah down. Aaron has to be flying. And all of a sudden now, he becomes bereft of not one son, but two of his sons that are lying dead, lifeless, in front of him. And Aaron's reaction, Vayidom Aaron. Aaron is silent, and I rob myself that this was not a passive silence, this was an active silence. Some people are silent because they're shocked. No, Aaron's silent represented acceptance. Accepted the Gezerah Bakarosh Baruchu, and he didn't have any, uh, any questions. This is, again, a silence of acceptance, which normally, in the process of mourning, acceptance takes, takes a long time. You know, there's anger, there's resentment, there's guilt, there's different stages of mourning. But Aaron was able to get to the final stage immediately within one second. He got to the end, acceptance. Because he had tremendous emunah. Now we have a problem. Let me tell you the halachic problem that we have now. We have two dead bodies in the Kodesh, in the holies. Problem is, Aharon is a Kohen Gadol. And a Kohen Gadol is never allowed to contaminate himself, even for close relatives. So Aharon was not allowed to move the bodies out because he's a Kohen Gadol, so he's, he's off to the side. Okay. Now, normally, regular Kohanim would be allowed to contaminate themselves to family members, to close family members. So technically, Aharon had two other surviving children. They were called El-Azar and Itamar. They should have been able to pull Nadab Abihu out of the Kodesh and deal with the arrangements and the burial. Problem was that on that day of the inauguration, there was a special law that was enacted by God that only applied on that day, that even regular Kohanim, like el Azabi Tamar, are not allowed to impurify themselves, are not allowed to contaminate themselves to relatives. So therefore, they were off, off, uh, off service as well. So now Aaron can't do it, and uh, el Azabi Tamar can't do it. So now who is going to tend to the bodies of these two tzaddikim? So they went to the closest of kin. And it seems that even Moshe on that day couldn't do it, because it seems that Moshe on that day still had a status of a Kohen, and therefore he couldn't do it. So now who's going to do it? So they found the first cousin. Let me tell you who they did. Aharon's father was a man called Amram. Amram had a brother called Uziel. Okay? So Uziel had a son called, two sons, Mishael and El-Safan. So Mishael and El-Safan are first cousins with Aharon and Moshe. So Moshe tells uh, Aharon, go, go get somebody to, to Moshe Rabinu actually calls upon his first cousins, Mishael and El-Safan, B'nai Uziel, Dod Aharon. The Torah goes out of its way to say the cousins of Aharon. Now, why do we care if they were the cousins or not the cousins? So I saw a beautiful explanation from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. He says, from here we learn that family must tend to their family members. That means if, if there's a family member available, the mitzvah is on him 
to take care of you. Maybe call the random guy. He said, no, God forbid, somebody passes away and the family needs help, it's incumbent upon family to step forward and take care of it. Otherwise, they could have called anybody. But why do they specifically call the cousin? Because you're the next relative. And therefore, now what did they do? The Pasuk says, Vayomir alehem. So he says to them, Kiribu, come close. Se'u et ahechem. Carry your brothers, your relatives. Me'et bene akodesh el mechus lemachane. And as she says, so sadly, it's as if you're in the middle of a wedding and somebody dies in the middle of the wedding and you don't want the, the, the wedding to be spoiled. So you take out the dead bodies in order that the people don't have to see the bodies in the middle of the wedding. So that she says, like a person tells his friend, you know, take away the myth from the bride in order not to ruin and spoil the happiness. Now, this is something that is very important to know. A fire came down and consumed them. Now, if you're not going to lend the she, you would think that they turned into a pile of ash. God forbid. The next pasuk says, uh, they came close. They were carried in their clothes. That means they were fully intact, and even their clothes were intact. Their clothes did not get burned. How did they die? Now she says that a, uh, a, a fire went into their nostrils and just snuffed out the neshama, but their body was in, uh, was in total tact. That's a, a, special type of, uh, a special type of death. This is a very spiritual type of death where God takes the tzaddikim's neshama in a... Listen, the Zohar Kadosh will tell you that Nadab Abihu on a very high spiritual level, even though they made a, a sin over here, but the sin was uh, not to be taken, you know, you know as, a, as a federal crime. Like we said, they were great tzaddikim. They, they died in attachment to God. Their, their body was so close to God. Rahman Kadosh says that it was like a magnet. They couldn't... You know, when, when, you're, when you're serving God to such a close level, sometimes the neshama just yearns to go back to its origin. It doesn't want to stay on earth. So Nadav Avi was struggling to keep the neshama in their bodies. They were so spiritual, they just wanted to, you know, go, go to the higher levels. And they died a death of anticipation and yearning and desire of being close to Hashem. So it was a very, very noble death. That's where their body was, uh, you know, totally intact. It was not a, you know, it was not a, uh, the body did not take any, any abuse. And now Moshe will tell Aharon and Elazar and Itamar, Banav, his sons. Do not let your hair grow. Now, normally, in normal mourning, the mourner has to let his hair grow. But here again, because this was an exception, so now God tells the children of Aaron, you're not allowed to let your hair grow. And do not rip your clothes. Normally, by a normal case in Avelud, God forbid, the mourner has to rip his clothes. But since this was an exception, they were commanded specifically not to rip their clothes. And if you listen to these instructions, you will not die. As she says from here, we learned that had they mourned, they would have been subject to the death penalty. And the pasuk says something unbelievable. But what's incumbent upon the Jewish people, 
The Jewish people's job at this point is to do one thing, to cry. Why is it incumbent upon the Jewish people to cry? So that she says, from here we learn that whenever we see a Tamid Hakam who's in pain, it's incumbent for all the community to mourn with the Tamid Hakam. Aharon now was in pain. Aharon, the great rabbi, the great leader, now was in mourning for his two sons. And therefore, the reaction of the people cannot be, uh, you know, just uh, um, indifferent. And it's okay, listen, what could you do? No. So therefore, the Torah says you have to cry. And there's an old custom from the Zohar Kadosh that says, even till today, on Yom Kippur, we read this parasha about the death of Aharon. And actually, before the Sefer Torah is taken out, we sing a song that relives this whole story. And then at the end, talks about Shereb and Aharon that were killed. And the Zohar Kadosh says that whoever cries and sheds a tear for the children of Aharon that died, which is not an easy thing because it's something that happened so many years ago, but if somebody can connect to the story to the level where he sheds a tear, few things. Number one, God takes those tears and he erases all his Averod, and it says, God forbid, his children will, will not die in his own lifetime. So what that's, did he uh, do that was so terrible, Aharon, that's getting punished for it? What did Aharon do? What did Aharon do? It's a good question. The Zora Kadosh discusses maybe it was his involvement in Chaita Egel that he involved himself, although he was not but he had his hand in Chaita Egel, maybe that's why he deserved it. Uh, but again, if we look at it from the higher level, we don't look at this as a necessarily a, a punishment to Aaron. These were great Sandikim that this had to happen. So something that was part of the inauguration of the Mishkan, the, the elevation of God's fear needed to be mm-hmm. brought. And it could have happened to Moshe and Aaron, so in a certain way they got saved. Instead of happening it to them, it happened to their, to their children. The, the lesson over here is, is that Aaron accepted it without any reservation. This point says, pentamutu. They were not allowed to even leave the oil, the, the holy areas. Because they were anointed with the holy oil. Nonetheless, they still listened to uh, Moshe and they did not, uh, they did not deviate. So again, not a coincidence that we're reading about the death of these great Sadiqim, the same week that we lost Chaim Kanievsky, who was like the, the great uh, Kohen of our generation. And... Uh, Torah is coming to tell us that it was a kapara, but it's supposed to bring fear into B'nai Israel. So we pray that the rabbi's death will be an atonement for us and bring us to you know, higher levels and closeness and proximity to Kedosh Baruch Hu. And we'll bring it to Ashkemah, and all those that Yeshuot, B'nai Hamon, the merit that we talked about, B'nai Aharon, but discussed it even we're learning Hashem, we have a lot of members here tonight we're learning for the refuah of Sarin that's Hayasara Batsimha every night in order to uh, give her a zechut there's no better zechut than the zechut of learning Torah 
<coughs> especially that we're connecting to the Perashah through the eyes of the Master. That is, of course, Rashi. <coughs> now let's recap where we got to last night. Last night was a, you know, unfortunate uh, reading. The death of the children of Aharon. And we learned about Aharon's acceptance of the death. We also learned about some of the laws of the Kohanim that they were not allowed to contaminate themselves in order to remove the body <clears throat> or the bodies of Nadab Abihu. Uh, God told them that uh, they must remain pure. This was an exception. Normally, Kohanim are allowed to contaminate for their close relatives. That's why today, God forbid, if <clears throat> a uh, you know uh, Kohen dies, their family is in the in the funeral. We don't let them you know go across the street. They come into the building itself because Kohanim are allowed to uh, contaminate themselves for close relatives. On the opening day of the Mishkan, there was an exception and the Kohanim were not allowed to <clears throat> uh, uh, conduct themselves in a, uh, in a way of mourning. So they couldn't rip their clothes, they, had, they could not let their hair grow, and they were not allowed to uh, come in contact with the body. So we learned the cousins of Aharon, Mishael and El-Safan, who were the sons of Uziel, who was the brother of Amram, the father of Moshe and Aaron. The cousins came in, and they took the body out, and uh, that's where we left off. Now, we said that Aharon, his reaction was with great uh, faith and emunah, and acceptance, as we would say, and as a result, God will now speak to Aharon Privately, that's the reward that Aaron gets for reacting the way he did. He gets a private and a customized revelation from God. Normally, God appears to Moshe, and then Moshe gives the law to the people. But here we're going to have a rare pasuk in the Torah, the pasuk that we begin tonight's reading. It's Perek Yud. It's pasuk eight. 10.8 I know that that sounds uh, sounds strange. Normally it's but this is an exception. Maybe the only one of its kind. That over here God said because Aharon reacted so uh, so so faithfully to the tragic events so God says he deserves a you know a hizuk. He deserves encouragement, and therefore God will speak to Aharon and tell him the following law, and the law is Yayin v'shechar al tesht You're not allowed to drink intoxicating wine Ata u'banecha you and your children itach with you b'bo'achem el'ohen mo'ed v'lo tamutu This is the law that teaches us that they're not allowed to enter the mishkan intoxicated. And if they do enter intoxicated, so then the Torah levels a death penalty against them. So therefore, it's a serious crime for the Kohanim uh, to work while intoxicated. You know, they teach is that us only with, is that only with wine, Rabbi? 
No, any intoxicating beverage. Okay. But the Torah discusses uh, specifically wine, but you're right. It is any intoxicating uh, beverage over here. Now, uh, they teach us in school, don't drink and drive. Well, the Torah teaches us don't serve and, and drink, which means don't drink and serve, which means the Kohanim have to be sober when they're doing the, uh, when they're doing the Avodah. So therefore, the Torah says, Ul habdir ben ha-kodesh ben ha-hol ben la-tahor. The reason why they cannot drink is they must show a, uh, a distinction between the holy things and the mundane. Uh, in order that uh, the Torah says that if they served while intoxicated, their service is invalid. So it means the Torah when it says to separate bin Kodesh lehol. If they drink, then their service is hol. It's not considered a service. So it invalidates the service. So Kwanim have to be very careful not to drink. And now the Torah tells us another law. Udhorot et Bnei Yisrael et Kolahokim Asher Diber Adonai Alehem Biad Moshe. Furthermore, regarding teaching the children of Israel the laws. Now, what does teaching the Jewish people the laws have to do with this? So that she comes along and says that a posek halakha, somebody, a rabbi that renders rulings or a judge is not allowed to judge also while intoxicated. Now, he's not going to be subject to the death penalty like the Kohanim. That's only the Kohanim get that. But... Um, Nonetheless, Kohani, uh, the judges have to be careful when they're rendering halakhic rulings uh, that they didn't drink. Uh, that's a halakha that still applies to today. Now, by the Ben Moshe el This is a very unique perasha that we're going to read now. I'm going to give you the um, I'm going to give you the gist of what's going to happen now. Moshe is going to come to his brother Aharon. And he's going to tell him that he, uh, he's not acting halakhically correct. After all, Aharon is considered now an onen. Onen means, God forbid, one of his relatives died and they didn't bury him yet. So he's in the status of onen. It's a halakhic status. It's in between the uh, death and the burial. And there's laws that apply to onen. And Moshe Rabbeinu is going to rebuke his brother and say that you're not following the laws of Aminut correctly. And to that, Aharon is going to question his brother and say, uh, I think you're making a mistake. Uh, I am acting correctly in the laws of Aninut. And Aharon will explain himself why he thinks he's correct in whatever he's doing. And here you're going to see one of the greatest moments of Moshe when he's going to tell his brother you're right, I made a mistake. Look how great Moshe Rabbeinu is. The greatest prophet, the greatest Torah scholar, that he has the intellectual honesty and the uh, veracity to come tell his brother, you're right, I made a mistake, I'm wrong, the halakha follows you. That's what makes Moshe Rabbeinu great. Uh, not that he never makes a mistake, but the fact that he admits it, that's a great 
a great person. You know, the Torah doesn't expect perfection. Human beings, they, they have flaws. They, they don't always say, yeah, say the right thing. But Bode Olam expects that a person owns up to his mistake. Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, you know, he could have uh, could have covered it up, but he did not. Now let's get to the details of it. So it says, by the Ber Moshe el Aharon ve'el el Azar ve'el Itamar notarim. So he's speaking now to his brother Aharon and to the children who remained alive. That's el Azar ve'el Itamar. Those are the two children of Aharon that did not die. The Torah tells them hanotarim. Now, somebody asked last night at the end of the class, rightfully so, Rabbi, what was this punishment of Aharon that he lost his children? So that she's going to tell us over here the reason. And she says, That really, all of Aharon's children were supposed to die as a result of his part in Cheta Egel. Even though his part was not a major part in the sense that he had no intention to do Avodah Zarah, God forbid, but he was there and he was involved to whatever degree he was and therefore he needed a kapara and really not only his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were supposed to die, El-Azar Itamar were also supposed to die. And that's why it calls them Hanotarim, the remaining, which means he got lucky, they remained because they weren't supposed to remain. Now, what happened uh, how do we know that his children were supposed to die? Because after the Egil, the Pasuk says, and Aharon, regarding Aharon, God got very, very enraged with Aharon. He wanted to destroy Aharon. How do you destroy a person? Destroy his family. So he wanted to take all his children away. That was the original intent. When it says destruction, it means the annihilation, God forbid, of the children. And how then did Aharon uh, bypass this decree? It was the prayer of Moshe that nullified half the decree. From here we learned the famous rabbinical rule, that if there's a decree, God forbid, against somebody, you could pray it away. And if you can't pray it all away, at least you'll be able to pray half of it away. And through Moshe Rabbeinu's prayer, he was able to cut the decree in half, and at least El-Azar and Itamar survived. Very good. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu is going to tell Aharon the following. Take the minha. Now, if you remember, we learned this is the first day of the Mishkan. They were bringing a lot of korbanot, a lot of atonements, a lot of korban shilamim, and they also brought meal offerings, minha. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, take the minha and uh, bring it next to the Mizbeach and eat it. Now, even though you are onen, and normally the law is onen is not allowed to eat from the uh, kadashim, from the holy food, and this minha is holy food, Moshe Rabbeinu said, nonetheless, I know you're an onen, 
nonetheless, go eat from the minha. matzot. And eat it in the way of matzot, meaning don't make bread out of it. They don't make bread out of the minha. They make matzot. That she says, lefi shehaya minhat sibur, u minhat sha'a, ve'en ka yotseba ledorot, utzrach lefareshpa, din sha'ar minachot. Why did he have to say, eat it matzot? All minachot are matzot. Why did Moshe Rebbe have to say, make sure you eat it matzot? All the minachot are eaten matzot. Because since this was a once in a lifetime minha, it was only brought on the inauguration day. Moshe had to specify that this once-in-a-lifetime minha is like all the others. We know the law of all the other minachot. But you might have thought that the inaugural minha might be different. So Moshe Rabbeinu specified. No, it's not. You eat it matzot. Now, v'achaltem ota b'makom kadosh, and you shall eat the minha in a holy place, this is the law for you and your children, Hashem regarding the uh, sacrifices, the offerings of God, so Moshe says, that's what I was commanded to tell you. That what? I was commanded to tell you that, what is that? you say? That even though you are Onen, and normally, as I said, Onen doesn't eat Kadashim, in this case, you're going to eat. Now, regarding, we've learned that they took the uh, parts of the Korban Shalamim, they took the chest of the Shalamim. And the fats, and we said they waved it. And they put those on the Mizbeah. Uh, and he tells them that those parts of that Qurban also, Tochilu makom Tahor, eat them as well. Now, it says, eat them in a holy, in a, in a pure place, makom Tahor. So basically, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, business as usual, that even though you're in Onen, you must eat the Minha, and now you must eat the parts of the Shalamim that are normally eaten. Now, the Pasuk of Yah says you should eat it in a pure place. Now, what do you mean a pure place? That she says, Well, the other stuff, did they eat it in an impure place? Why does he have to say a pure place? The items that were mentioned earlier have a status called Kodesh Kodashim. They are holier on a higher degree. So they have to eat it in the courtyard of the Mishkan. But these public offerings, which are a, a, a peace offerings, which is Shinamim, which is a lower level, you don't have to eat it within the confines of the Mishkan. So therefore they were allowed to eat it uh, outside the camp. So therefore they're saying, you don't have to eat it in a holy place, but it has to be a pure place. And that's uh, uh, what he was telling them to do. Fine.
And again it says, you and your sons, ata ubanecha ubnotecha. So if you notice over here in Pasuk Yudalit, it mentions the daughters as well. But if you look in Pasuk Yudimal, it just says, ki banecha. There it doesn't mention the daughters. And Rashi points out that when it comes to the holy items, like the menachot, the girls do not eat. But when it comes to shiramim, which is a lower level of, of, of sanctity, then the ladies, uh, the girls, are included in the apportioning. And therefore, they get a, they get a part as well. They're able to eat. Okay. Now, it says, what did I eat from the Qurban Shalamim? Shok at they eat the shok, which is the, uh, let's say, the thigh, and the hazer, the hazer is the chest area. Al isha halavim, yabiu lanif to nufal of Nashem, vayalechal banecha, etechal lechokolam kashesibashem. Fine. So that is the. That is what Moshe Rabbeinu tells Aaron so far. And now he comes along and he says, here's the part. And regarding the the se'ir, the se'ir was the goat that was brought as a sin offering for the people to atone for the sin of the egg. Now, normally a hatat is eaten by the kohanim, part of it. So it says, and regarding the se'ir hatat, Darosh Darash Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu gave a, a ruling on this. This was, now the Seed HaTat Rashi says, there was actually three goat offerings on that day. One was the Sa'id of Rosh Chodesh, because you have to remember, it was Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And every Rosh Chodesh we bring a goat as a Qurban HaTat. Uh, so that was one of them. That's the Sa'id Izim. And the second one was the Sa'id of Nachshon. Nachshon was the president, and we learned that each day of the inauguration of the Mishkan, a presidential korban was brought from the presidents of the tribes, and he brought a Sa'id as well. And they also brought the Sa'id Izim, which was brought on the inaugural day which was atonement for the egg. So those are the three se'idim that were brought. Rashi, ushlosha se'idir hataot karabu bobayom. Kihu se'id izim, us'id nachshon, us'id rosh chodesh. Now, umekulan lo nisraf ela zeh. Now the only one that was burnt in its entirety was this one. Now we we learned already that normally a Qurban Hatta, you don't burn in its entirety. But remember, we said that they took the skin and they took the, uh, the fats and they took it outside the camp and they had to burn it totally. Now, there's a big argument over here. Why did they have to burn the Why did they have to burn the entire, entire goat? Now, again, we're talking about, at this point, the goat for Rosh Chodesh. 
So it says they had to burn the whole thing. As she says, why was it burned? So some say because it became impure. Somebody impure touched it, that's what had burned it. And some say no, because Aharon, once he became Onen, Nisraf, the law is Onen cannot eat from the Korbanot. And therefore they had to burn it. Very closely. There's a difference between korbanot that are brought forever and korbanot that were only brought on inauguration day. And therefore, if you remember, what did Moshe Rabbeinu tell Aharon to do with the minha? He told him to eat it. And normally, a nonen does not eat. So why did Moshe Rabbeinu tell him to eat the minha? Because it's a once-in-a-lifetime. The once-in-a-lifetime items... We make an exception today. Onen can eat. So therefore, Aharon understood from this that the goat of Rosh Chodesh is not a once-in-a-lifetime item. It's an every Rosh Chodesh. It's a monthly. And therefore, since he's Onen, he took the goat of Rosh Chodesh and burnt it. Because there, you don't have the exception of an inaugural sacrifice. The seed of Rosh Chodesh wasn't inaugural. It was... It was the normal Qurban. So now we go back. And regarding the Sa'id, the he goat, Moshe Rabbeinu explained and gave them uh, uh, an understanding because Suraf. And now. <coughs> The Torah says like this. Moshe Rabbeinu investigated and he asked and he noticed that they burnt the Sa'id of Rosh Chodesh. He noticed it. He didn't tell them to do it. He noticed it. And now Moshe is going to get angry. Why didn't you eat it? Why didn't you eat the, the Qurban? Why did you burn it? <clears throat> so he says, you, You're supposed to eat it. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu over here, it's hard to say it, but is making a mistake. Aharon was right. There's a difference between the Qurban of Rosh Chodesh and the other Qurban. The Qurban Rosh Chodesh is a normal monthly Qurban. There's no exception when it comes to that. And it was since he was Onen, he was supposed to burn it. So Moshe gets angry and Aharon says, what are you burning it for? This is a Qurban. You got to eat it. The people need kapara. And we know the Qurbanot of Rosh Chodesh that she reminds us, It's it's, it's, it's mekapet on sins. He says, unless it became tamer, but it didn't become tamer. Did you sprinkle the blood the wrong way? Did you do something that should make this uh, Qurban Rosh Chodesh unfit? You didn't. So if that's the case, why did you burn it? 
He tells them, You didn't sprinkle the blood in the wrong place. Because if you would have sprinkled in the wrong place, I understand why you're burning it. And therefore, You should have eaten it in the Kodesh. Like I told you, didn't I tell you to eat the minha? I told you to eat the minha in, 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 in Onen. So why didn't you eat the Kurban of Rosh Chodesh? Oh, so now, Aaron says, by the bear, Aaron and Moshe, he tells him, En ayom ikribu et chatatam, vet onatam nefne Hashem, vatikrena oti ka'ele, ve'akharti chatati hayom, hayitam be'ene Hashem. He says, I don't understand. He says, Look what happened to me today. I lost my two children, he said. And therefore, I have a status of an onen. Am I supposed to eat the korban hatat? Is that good in the, in the name of God? Would that be acceptable? She says again, um, You only heard from God that an onen can be lenient on what's called kodshe once in a lifetime korbanot. But that doesn't mean onen can be lenient on Monthly korban, not like the the korban of hatat of Rosh So you see over here, we now have a big debate taking place between Moshe and Aaron. Was Aaron right? Was he right for burning the site of Rosh Chodesh? Moshe is claiming, doesn't matter that you're an onen. God told me today, even though you're an onen, eat everything. And Moshe, Aaron says, no, that's not what God told you. God didn't tell you to tell me to eat everything. He only said to eat them in ha. Yeah, that's an inaugural one. The ones that are once in a lifetime, you're right. But the stuff that's monthly, no, he didn't tell you that. And therefore, Moshe, maybe you didn't uh, relay the law correctly. Understand what's going on? It's an amazing thing. Now look at this next pasuk. Vayishma Moshe Moshe heard the argument. Now look at the beautiful words of Rashi. Hoda velo bosh. He confessed and he admitted that Aharon was right and he was not ashamed to say lo shabati. I had not had heard this law. Which means he said, you're right. I said something that I didn't hear. He says, you got me. God only told me that you should eat the hatat. He did not tell me that you should eat the Rosh Hashanah. Now, I'll tell you a lesson that I learned from this. Who just lost his two sons? Aharon. Where does a person have a, a, a brain to even argue logically and rationally, let alone to Moshe, the smartest man? And he's right. That shows you how clear-headed and clear-minded Aharon was even at this Tragic moment. God forbid when somebody passes away, they got to give him pills. 
just to, to calm him down so he doesn't feel the, the pain, so he doesn't go crazy. And here Aaron, he's stable, so stable that what happened right after his sons died, God came to him. Now, God can only come to a person if he's happy and he's content. That means Aaron was not depressed, Aaron was not dejected or despondent. It just shows you the, the strength of character of this great Sadiq Aaron that after he got hit twice, he still was able to stabilize himself enough to have a conversation with God and enough to debate Moshe. And more than enough, he was right. And he even got Moshe to say, you're right. Yes. Did his two sons die at the same time? Mm-hmm. I did. Uh-huh. Anyway, that's the piece tonight. Uh, it's a classic piece of the conversation of Moshe and uh, and Aaron. But now I think we got it at least on a uh, on a simple basis. Let this be for the Tuashir of Hayasara, but Simha, which all our members Laila Tov. And we're going to begin now <coughs> learning the uh, parasha. We're up to chapter 11, the bankruptcy chapter. Perek Yud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. We're learning these... Uh, Lessons with Fuashrema Hayasara Bat Simha in Narifanada Betoshar Hoda Amo Israel. Amen. Now, our parasha has many topics. We are now going to move to a totally different topic, not related to the discussions that we discussed in the previous uh, days. Till now, we talked about the inauguration, we talked about the Korbanot, we talked about the untimely death of Nadav Abihu, we talked about the aftermath, how Moshe Rabbeinu rebuked the Haron, and then Haron explained his, himself, and Moshe Rabbeinu said, you're right, and he admitted that, uh, you know, he made a mistake. Now we're going to move on to the laws of kosher, kosher food which is in this week's parasha. So God speaks to Moshe and Aharon, actually, that she says he spoke to Moshe, and then Moshe tells it to Aharon. That's the way it worked. Always God communicates to Moshe, and then Moshe tells Aharon. And Aharon then will tell his children, Al-Azhar and Itamar. And then it goes to Bnei Israel. So that's the, uh, as the next pasuk says, the Beru El Bnei Israel. Speak to Bnei Israel. So therefore, they're the messengers to give over the uh, law to the children. Again, the reason why they get the zikhut to give over the Torah, that she says because they were all equal in their silence, which means they all accepted the death. Harun accepted the death of his sons. Al-Azhar and Itamar accepted the death of their brothers. And therefore, as a result, God rewards them. What's the uh, reward? So God speaks to them here with great respect. The Pasuk says, Vaydaber Hashem al-Moshe Harun God speaks to Moshe and Aharon, Lemor, and they're going to speak to 
Moshe, I mean, Aharon will give it over to his children, to Elazar Itamar, and then it'll be given over to Bnei Israel. So that's a, a sign of affection that God is showing to Aharon and his children that he singled them out because of, again, their uh, faithful reaction to the death. So that she says that they got reward because of their silence. And what does he tell them? So, the following animals, living creatures, one is allowed to eat. Now, why do we have a specific diet? Why can't we just eat anything we want? Why are we limited to kosher foods? So Rashi over here says, Because the Jewish people cleave to God. And therefore, we, we are fit to be alive. So God separated us from things that are impure. That's why we have mitzvot. But the nations of the world, God doesn't say anything to them regarding this. It's like a doctor. That he comes to visit somebody that's ill. Now, she doesn't finish the midrash, but the midrash goes like this. A doctor went to visit two patients, and he saw that one had a fatal illness. So we told that patient's family, give him any food he wants. The doctor saw that the other patients had a chance to survive. So he said to the patient's family, he should eat these foods and not eat those foods. They said to the doctor, what's going on over here? Why did you tell the, uh, the other one that he could eat whatever he pleases? And to this one, you forbid many foods. The doctor said, I told the one who will live, eat this and do not eat that. But I told the family of one who will die, give him whatever he wants, for he will not live. Similarly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu permitted those who worship stars and constellations and Abu Nazarah and eat disgusting creatures and creeping things. But to Israel, who are destined to live, and uh, do not make yourselves abominable, God says, you shall not eat uh, this and you shall not eat that. Again, why? Because Israel is destined to live, as it says, that they are going to cleave to Kadosh Baruch Hu in Olam Abba. So therefore, because of our high status, so God gives us a special diet. And now the Torah says, uh, when it comes to uh, the eating, we begin with the animals. Zota Haya. So that she says, Melamed, Shehaya Moshe Ochez Bahaya. Moshe Rabbeinu was holding the creature. Umare Otali Israel, and he was showing it, like show and tell. He was showing it to the people. And he said, Zot Tochidu, this you can eat. Bezot lo Tochidu, and this you may not eat. Ezet Tochidu Vigomer, Afbishet Se Hamayim, when it came to the creeping creatures of the water, Ahazmi Kolmin Bamin, he also lifted up every creature and he showed them. Veradahem, Bechem Baof, when it comes to the birds as well. So therefore you see that Moshe Rabbeinu actually gave them a, uh, a lesson by showing them the animals that they are permissible, showing them the creatures that they are permissible, and showing them the birds that are permissible and, and not.
Kol mafreset parsa. So the kosher signs for an animal, number one is that they have to have split hooves. So split hooves is, for example, you have the, the paw of the animal and it's split. That already is an indication of a, uh, a kosher uh, a kosher animal split all the way through. Now, uh, what does mean? That it's separated with a split. So that she says, That the hoof is divided above and below, which means to the entire height of the hoof. In the, in the two nails. So therefore, if you see the picture over here, we have um, this is the split hoof of a sheep. You see there, you can see exactly. This is obviously not split. And this over here, you can see closely, it has a split in the in the hoof all the way through and all the way thick. So that makes it uh, that makes it kosher. And that's only one sign. You need another sign to be kosher, and that is ma'ale gera. And what is ma'ale gera? So literally, it means it chews its cud. That means after the food goes down into the stomach of the animal, it brings it back up and regurgitates it, and he chews it a second time. That's called chewing its cud, called gera. Okay, and that's the way. Uh, that's the way it works. So those are the two. Uh, kosher signs. Babehema. In animals. Fine. And the Rashi comes along and says that this word, etabehema, is extra in the Pasuk because he already mentioned Zotahaya, Asher Tokhlu Mikola Behema. So why does it say at the end of the Pasuk, Babehema? So that comes in clues and says that it is permissible to eat the fetus of the animal. So the fetus of the animal also is considered uh, kosher. That means once you slaughter the mother, the fetus is considered like a piece of meat. Did anybody ever eat it? Yeah. Um, uh, well, they don't have it in, in our restaurants that we go to, but you can eat it. The verse thus indicates that even a fully formed fetus, which could survive on its own, is allowed to be eaten without ritual slaughter. If its mother has been properly slaughtered. So imagine that you slaughter the mother, and then all of a sudden they find this fetus inside. So then you can eat it. So it's like a two for one. Those are the two, the two signs. Now, Now the following animals only have one sign. Etagamal, the camel. Now the camel chews its cut. But it doesn't have split hooves. That's why we can't eat uh, camels. Now, if you look at the if you look at the camel, the camel is this one over here. You'll see it has a different type of split hoof. That's not considered split. It's, it's separated like that. Has to be split like this. So therefore, although it has a form of split, but it's not the um, it's not the regular the regular way that it's supposed to be split, and therefore it's not kosher. 
it doesn't go all the way, it doesn't go all the way through. And so the camel is out. What else do we got? We have then the Shafan. Now the Shafan is the Hyrax. Okay, anybody know what a Hyrax is? Well, it's not kosher. It's Ma'aligira, it chews its cud, but it does not have split hooks. The next one is the Arnevit. The Arnevit is the rabbit. And a rabbit is Ma'aligira. It chews its cud, but again, it does not have split hooks. So all these three that we just mentioned have chewing cud, but no split hooks. What are they again? The camel, the hyrax, and the rabbit. And then the Torah says, Hazir. Regarding the, forgive me, but the pig, the pig actually has split hooks. However, but it does not chew its cut. Now this is uh, something that is truly amazing what I'm going to tell you now. The Torah tells us, the Gemara confirms it, that every animal in the world either has both sides or no sides. Again, every animal in the world has either both sides, which would make them kosher, or no sides, which makes them very not kosher, except for four animals. The only four animals that we mentioned here are animals that have one sign. And they are the camel, the hyrax, and the rabbit. They, to its cut, but they don't have split hooks. The, uh, the pig, forgive me again, has split hooks, but it doesn't chew its cut. So therefore, the Gemara makes an amazing statement. Let's say you're in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and you find an animal, and you're trying to discern if it's kosher or not. And it has split hooks, but you're unable to determine if it chews its cud. Because let's say the teeth of the animal are knocked out or his, his mouth is deformed, so you can't tell if it chews its cud. So the Gemara says, so long as you can determine that it's not a pig, it's automatically kosher. Because the pig is the only animal in the world that has split hooks that does not chew its cud. There is no other animal like that in the world. Now, this is a proof, ladies and gentlemen, to the truth of our Torah. Who can make such a statement? Only God who created all the animals knows exactly the inventory. And he knows exactly the uh, characteristics of the animals. And therefore, if a Bible critic, for example, uh, wanted to disprove the Torah. Very easy. Let him just go find one animal besides the pig that has split hooves and does not chew its cud and he will have successfully disproved the Torah. Well, these Bible critics have been looking for this animal for 5,782 years and they haven't found it yet. And I'll tell you another secret. They're not going to find it. Because God, who created the world, has made it very clear that the pig is the only animal that has uh, that, uh, that trait. And for that matter, 
there's only four animals that were mentioned that only have one trait. So if they can even find just one more animal that has one feature, they would disprove the Torah. Now, I'm saying that pejoratively because we know nobody's going to disprove the Torah. But it just shows you, if anybody wants proof that our Torah is emit, this is one of the proofs that they haven't found yet the animal that has one sign uh, besides the uh, ones that are mentioned. So that is a... Also the fish, Rabbi, right? Well, we'll get to the fish now. Very good. And in scales. Rabotai, we're still in the meat restaurant. Now we're going to go to the fish restaurant in a minute. Now it says, We're not allowed to eat their flesh. The Torah tells us that even when they, uh, when they die, these animals... The animals are going to exude ritual impurity. So, therefore, uh, the Jewish people are uh, should not touch these um, you know, these carcasses. Again, if, especially a kohen, because the kohanim are the really ones that are prohibited against coming in contact with impure things, and therefore the kohanim have to be careful not to touch the carcass of the of the animal, because it would render them uh, tamir. Now, there's no sin for a Jew, not a coin, a regular Israel, to touch these dead animals, because regular Jews are not commanded against the laws of Tum'ah. But a Kohen is. So therefore, the Torah says, that you may not touch their carcasses. Again, a, uh, a law to the Kohanim. Good. And now we move on to the um, I mean, the Torah does say that um, that the meat of these animals are forbidden, but the, the bones, for example, are permissible, and the gidin, which is the sinew, and the horns you could use, and the hooves. So it's important to know that the bones of not kosher animals are not forbidden. Uh, that's where they make gelatin from. They take the bones of non kosher animals and they pulverize it and they use that to make gelatin. So, yeah, that's why according to many rabbis, the gelatin would be kosher, again, if they make it without adding anything else, because it's really made up of bones. And as long as the bone is clean from any meat, the uh, Torah says clearly in our that only the meat is forbidden, but the other parts of the animal uh, are not. And therefore, they're not forbidden, therefore, it should be okay. Now, uh, one more lesson over here. Fine. Now we talk about the fish. So the Torah says, uh, So fins and scales. So you know the fins are the, like the wings that the fish has on the side, and the scales are those like disc-like uh, items that are uh, on the fish. It looks like the fish is wearing armor. 
so therefore the Torah says, and whatever does not have fins and scales, so the Torah says these fish are forbidden and um, they are uh, their flesh is forbidden and the whole fish is forbidden that she says the Bisaram the fins are permissible and the bones. I don't know who's eating fins and bones. That's what's in our marshmallows, fish gelatin. Oh, fish gelatin. Okay, so there you go. That's in the marshmallows. So that's that would be from fish bones, and if there's nothing wrong with the bones of the fish. Now, there's a um, there's a big hadush over here because uh, the Gemara says that any fish that has fins automatically has scales. Which means uh, for a fish to be kosher, you got to have both sides. But the Gemara says that all fish, when I say fins, no, it's the opposite. All fish that have scales automatically have fins. So therefore, if you go to the fish store, and you see a fish that has scales, and you don't see the fins. I say they they cut the fins off. Doesn't matter. Automatically kosher. So, so therefore, again, if you wanted to disprove the Torah, which nobody's planning on doing, you just have to go is find one fish that has scales that does not have fins, and you disprove the Torah. But it's not going to happen because again, the Creator knows his stock. Therefore, God knows that He created the fish with fins and scales, and if they're scales, there's going to be fins, and therefore, that is really the the main side. Now, she just makes one point over here. The Gemara says that if it has fins and scales uh, in the water, kol ashed en lo vegomer matamu domar shiachol en li shiachol some might have thought that the only time fins and scales are a kosher sign if the fins and scales remain when you take it out of the water. But let's say there's some fish that when you pull them out of the water, the scales shed. So the Torah comes along and says, She's the main time that we judge it is in the water. But if it was in the water, and then when you pulled it out, it shed, it would be permissible. So that's a very important uh, law from the word Bamai. The time that we judge the kosher fish is in the water. I, when you pull it out, the scales will shed. That doesn't mean anything. It's still going to be kosher. So that is the, uh, that is the two laws that we learned here tonight. Number one, the two kosher signs for animals, chewing its cud and having split hooves. The exceptions that we said that only have one sign are the uh, hyrax and the camel and the rabbit, and of course the pig. And the pig is unique that it's the only animal that has split hooves, but does not chew its cud. There's no other animal besides that. 
And we said by the fish, for kosher fish, one has to have uh, fins and scales. Now, this is a good time to point out that so people go to, they go out to eat. In our terminology, when you say you go out to eat, that means they go out, they eat out. They go to non-kosher restaurants. And they rely on the fact that they're getting a fish, salmon, for example. And they know the Torah said salmon has fins and scales. So therefore, they put themselves under the assumption that they're eating kosher. But you have to remember, uh, in a non-kosher restaurant, they're seasoning the fish and they're putting it on the same uh, skillet as you know non-kosher stuff. And therefore, you shouldn't kid yourself to think just because you got a salmon that necessarily what you're eating is kosher. And we have to respect God. If he's giving us this diet, it's to our benefit. So we shouldn't be too arrogant to think that you know we are more you know, cultured and therefore we can eat whatever we want. Uh, the manufacturer of a car tells you what type of gas to use. And if you went to your car and you filled it up with diesel gas, Instead of regular gas, the car's not going to work. You probably destroyed it. The same thing with the Jewish body and soul. It can only tolerate certain certain foods. But other foods, if they're not kosher, they don't have a good supervision. They can cause a, a, a damaging effect besides on the body. Like Maimonides says, you are what you eat. And he says the majority of the sicknesses come from the food that we eat. But it also would have a negative impact on the soul. Okay, Rabotai. Stop over here. Bezat Hashem. Sarin Shereb Refua Shereba. Hayas Rabbat Simcha. Enna Refanada Betoshar Chodam Mo Israel. Amen.